0: Amen. Hey, if you have a Bible, and I hope that you do, go ahead and grab that. Meet me over in Matthew chapter 6. Uh, I said this at the very beginning, but if you weren't in the room, what tends to happen on, on Father's Day is we tend to take the time to beat you up, dads, and we tend to take the time on Mother's Day to praise you, moms, but I don't want to do that this morning. I actually think. It's quite awesome that dads, you decided to lead your family and be here this morning. And I think it's a great privilege to be a dad. And I just want to tell you, thank you and happy Father's Day. Can we give them a round of applause? <laughs> so I'm going to do what we do every week because we believe that God's word is our ultimate authority. We're going to teach through God's word. So Matthew chapter six, we've been in a sermon series over the last several weeks on the Lord's Prayer, and Clayton did a phenomenal job last week of talking about that last stanza in the Lord's Prayer. And today, I want to wrap up the series by teaching um, the entire chapter of Matthew 6, because the Lord's Prayer is within the context of Jesus' most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. All right? Hey, I remember being in middle school, uh, take a ride back in uh, time with me, and taking my dad's pager. To school, the one that didn't work, I'd put it on my old cargo pants that were baggy as all get out, and I had my frosted tips, and I had that bowl cut that looked a little bit more like a butt cut, and I would show up to school, and I thought that I was the man. One of the things, though, whenever I was growing up, and my wife's laughing because she's seen some of those pictures, y'all, that was wildly awful style. If you don't ever go back to that, man, Uh, One of the things I always wanted growing up was a pair of those Jordans. You know what I'm talking about? Those J's that you walk to in school and everybody had a fresh pair. The only problem is somehow I got left with those shacks. All right, like praise God for shack, but Walmart shacks weren't Jordans. And for me, I just decided at that time that I'm never going to, you know what it feels like to be a middle school kid and showing up to school on the first day of school in those shacks? Man, it made for a miserable experience. And I was like, I'm never going to be that guy ever again. Like, I'm not gonna be the Shaq kind of guy. Now you know where my shoe obsession came from, okay? All right, shoes were gonna be a big deal to me. But, but the reality is, have you ever been there? Have you ever been that person where because of your experience, you're never gonna do that, right? I'm never gonna be the guy that can't provide for my family, I don't know about you, but my dad didn't do a good job, so I'm going to be the the anti-that, and I'm going to be the dad who provides for my family. I'm never going to be the person who doesn't show up to work on time. And then you start reminiscing over some of these things, and it begins to shape who you are. If I just get that promotion, if I just get that promotion, everything's going to be okay. If I just meet the right person, or my kids just get the athletic scholarship to that school, then it's going to be okay. Some of you think, if I just get into that house, Right. If I just move off of Freemanville and I get that house, my life is going to be perfect. Or if we could just get a new president. And by the way, that's not saying this one. It's any president because there's people all over the world that just say that same thing. You ever realize that those are myths? You ever realize that there's the right person myth or the right job myth or the right school myth? And what ends up happening if you buy into those myths is those things begin to own you. Because with the things that you give your life to, as fleeting as they are, if you, if you give your life to those things, they end up becoming the most important things to you, and then you end up dedicating yourself to those things. Y'all, there are a couple disciplines that Jesus gives you in Matthew chapter 6 that have the power to release you from the next thing myth. If I just get the next thing, I'm just going to warn you, they're not super popular, Okay, You're going to want to reject them on the surface, but I'm telling you that if you will embrace what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6, they will give you a freedom to not be owned by the next thing myth. There are three things in context, prayer, fasting, and generosity. These three things are all tied together in Matthew chapter 6, and if you will embrace those three things, they will release you from that myth. Check out verse 19. Here's what it says. At what Jesus is saying, this is, this is a summary statement for him. He's going to show you that there are three acts in the Christian life, giving, prayer, and fasting. And all three of these intentional actions have the ability to move your mind from the next thing myth to heavenly things. This is why Jesus' concluding statement, don't lay it your, for yourselves treasures on earth, is so important. Y'all, check out what Jesus is saying. We're moth and rust destroy. He's literally saying that they wear out. That's what he's saying. These treasures, they wear out. If you give yourself to anything that's not heavenly, it's going to wear out. If you give yourself to your physical appearance or your athletic prowess, at some point, those achievements are going to give out and your body's going to give out. I'm 35 and I have a 70-year-old body. Sometimes I wake up with back pain simply because I went to sleep the night before. And some of you are sitting there thinking, wait till you turn 50, right? Amen. There you go. Even wealth that you accumulate is eventually going to go to somebody else and it's going to wear out. I heard this story from a public speech the other day. Listen to what it says. It says, my grandfather walked 10 miles every day. My father walked five. I'm driving a Cadillac. My son is in a Mercedes Benz and my grandson will be in a Ferrari. But my great grandson is going to be walking again. He was asked, why is that? He said this, tough times create strong men. Strong men create easy times. Easy times create weak men and weak men create tough times. Y'all, all all statistics will tell you that wealth, generational wealth, does not make it past the third generation. So here's what you're gonna do. You're gonna work your entire life to set up a generational wealth that your great-grandson is gonna squander. Just so you know. I've done a ton of funerals in my life and I've never seen a a U-Haul behind a hearse, ever. Never seen anybody do that. Matter of fact, I've had conversations with a lot of people on their deathbed and here's what they tell me. I wish I'd have done it differently. I've literally heard people say, Billy, I've climbed the corporate ladder my entire life only to see that whenever it got to the top of the building, it was leaning up against the wrong wall the entire time. I hear a lot of regrets. I don't hear a lot of people say, man, I'm so glad I did all that with my stuff. You get what I'm saying? All of your stuff is going to decay. Literally everything in this world that you have is going to decay. So why not leverage your life for something better is what Jesus is saying. Again, there's three things. Here they are, and we're going to take them one by one. Prayer, fasting, and generosity. These three things are ultimately more about control than anything else. So let's take them one by one. Number one, prayer. Prayer. Jesus does the Lord's Prayer. The disciples ask him to teach them how to pray. Remember what he says? Here's how you pray. Pray like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread... And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Think about what Jesus is doing when you take, we've taken this section off one by one throughout the last six weeks. Now think about what he's doing here holistically. The idea of this prayer is a directional move from the horizontal to the, uh, to the vertical. He's taking your eyes off of your circumstances, and he's placing them back onto what's important. Practically speaking, what you have to understand is that when you get this, when you get what Jesus is doing, it will revolutionize your entire life. This prayer is about the bigger picture. It's about recognizing God as Father. And when you recognize God as Father, that changes everything. Remember A.W. Tozer? We've quoted this a million times. What you think about when you think about God is the most important thing about you. If you start with the presupposition that God is evil or bad or not good, guess what else you're going to do? It's going to determine every other thing that you pray. And yet, Jesus says, hey, why don't you start your prayer off recognizing that God is a father and he's a good father? Hallowed or holy is his name. Here's what happens when you begin like that you begin to see the world differently. And can I just say this? If you're not a Christian, if you're an atheist, and you think that God is bad, listen to me, you're using a Christian ethic to judge a God you don't believe in anyway. So just stop, okay? Judge God on the grounds of which he is, and you have to begin by believing in who he is. What you see is whenever you see that God is good based on what he has already done, think about what he has done. Think about what God did for you. He demonstrated his love for you, Paul says, that while you were yet a sinner, meaning in the middle of your mess, Christ died for you. Think about what happens, here's, here's how it works. It begins to build a level of trust that you align your life with God, which then leads into the second line of the Lord's Prayer. First one is, here's who God is. The second one is your kingdom. When you see God rightly, you begin to build his kingdom instead of your kingdom, which pushes you into dependence. You see the progression in the Lord's Prayer? When you pray, knowing that God is a good father, you'll start to build his kingdom, and then you'll look for him to provide for you, not yourself, And this is why the Lord's Prayer is the greatest act of humility on the planet. By the way, praying. People ask me, why is praying so hard? And it is. It's because prayer takes humility. It's a confession that you don't run your own life. It's a confession that you really do need Jesus to be on the throne of your life. And that is a great act of humility. But every single line of this Lord's Prayer is a constant relinquishing of the control of your life to God. And what ends up happening as you relinquish it is it makes you more free. What if we stink at praying because we start in the wrong position? We start with asking for needs instead of recognizing who God is. And then then we just use God as a means to an end. Man, can I just tell you, for all of you, like the next line, the last line is this idea of lead me not into temptation. The, The reality is, and Clayton hit this last week, is you pray that prayer because temptation's really hard. Like, we're often tempted. And I I just want you to hear me say this. You need to pray that prayer proactively. Like, if you're walking into the hotel room with that person by yourself, and you're saying, God, please protect me, y'all, you're doomed already. You need to set up systems and guardrails beforehand. Listen, you don't accidentally fall into devastating sins. I've never met somebody that was like, man, I just woke up one day completely faithful to my wife, and I don't know how that happened. No, here's how it happened. You didn't build systems into your life to keep you from falling off the cliff. You decided to flirt with danger. And then whenever you're standing in front of danger at 11 o'clock at night when nobody's looking and you're all tempted, then you start praying, God, lead me not into temptation. How about you pray that prayer beforehand, set up good systems in your life so that you don't have to do those things. See, you you don't just fall into these things. That's not how it works. You make little decisions over a long period of time that put you in vulnerable positions. Instead of doing that, while you're still in the light, recognize that God's a good father that provides for you, pray for him now to lead you not into temptations, and then set your life up so that those things don't happen. When you do that, here's what happens. Prayer places your treasures in heaven. See how it's connecting? It's a discipline that takes your eyes off the horizontal, the worries of this world, and puts them where they belong. And what, what you think about God will determine how you think about everything else in the world, and it'll determine how you pray. So let me just ask you, practically speaking, when you close your eyes to pray, where do you imagine that God is? Is he distant and out there, and he's so far beyond you that you can never connect with him? Or... Is he next to you as you pray? Do you position him when you close your eyes that God is next to you? Or is he inside of you? Let me just tell you, all three of those things are true. God is so holy and other that he is distant. And yet he's so loving and kind that he is literally with you. Behold, Jesus says, I'm with you to the very end of the age. And he put his spirit inside of you. Did you realize that when you pray, you can pray to the God who is literally inside of you? Yo, that changes everything whenever you see that God is all three of those things at the same time, and your presupposition is that he is good. So that's prayer. Number two, fasting. Fasting is the lost art that none of us practice. Let's just be honest, okay? Do you know why we don't fast? Because it's really hard, all right? It's really hard. Let me tell you what fasting is. Fasting is intentionally not eating food for a couple of days. It's not intermittent fasting. Some of you are like, I did that this morning. That's not what fasting is. It's intentionally not eating food for a couple of days so that you can be reminded just how fragile your life is and how much you really need God. All right, listen, I forgot my phone at home this morning. I had Jim, our executive director, text Allison and ask her to bring my phone, and she laughed and said, I think he can do without it for a couple hours. Here's the reality, though. That's not fasting, okay? That's I got a problem. Like I'm starting to twitch a little bit because I'm on my phone. That's not fasting, though. Fasting is intentionally not eating food for a couple days so that you can remind your body how much you need God. Look at what Jesus says. Jesus says this in verse 16, and when you fast, you ever find it fascinating that Jesus actually assumes that you're fasting? And when you, when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. Y'all, if you want to know the definition of religious idolatry, it is right here. They took a very difficult thing and they practiced that so that you would look to them and be like, oh man, great job. You did good. Before you give them a hard time, I need you to see the warning of what Jesus is saying. Anything that you do out of a motive to gain approval by others becomes religious idolatry and not worship. Here's why. Rules that are motivated by religion always turn into rebellion, okay? I promise you, you govern your kids that way, they will rebel. You can do a lot of good things for the wrong reason and they aren't going to change who you are and they're not going to make you better. Think about parenting. Let's take a good example of parenting. If your kids only obey you whenever they get the allowance, take away the allowance and see if they continue to make their bed and obey you. What you'll find is that you've built a rules-based system and not a system that's based off love. What Jesus is saying is there's got to be a higher motivation to why we do these things or else it will always become a religious system. So here's what he says in verse 17, but when you fast, again, notice it, he's assuming that you're going to do this. Anoint your head and wash your face. Anointing your head was a way of saying have joy because back in the first century, the only time that you would not anoint your head is when you were trying to communicate self-denial. Here's what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying, when you fast, act like everything's normal. Do what you always do. Don't don't try to tell people and draw attention to yourself, verse 18, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who sees in secret. Does that sound familiar to you? Look back at verse 8. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you pray and before you ask. And then he says, but in verse verse 6, but your Father who sees in secret will reward you. It's the same kind of communication. Here's his point. There is a reward that you get from fasting. Why? Well, fasting moves your body from the horizontal worries of this world to the vertical. Prayer moves your mind. Fasting moves your body. Listen, that's so important. You need to have your mind move from the things and the worries of this world, and you need to have your body move from the things and the worries of this world. What you're going to see is that Jesus says that there are things that are fighting to own you, okay? If you don't want to be enslaved to temporary things, then you should regularly practice intentionally giving those things up and refocusing your mind and your body on your Savior. I love this phrase, your Father who sees in secret will reward you. He knows. See what he's saying? The God who knows knows you and he wants to give you good things. Y'all, prayer and fasting are for your good, And that's exactly why the enemy is trying to convince you that you shouldn't do it. Think about that. The reason why we have a hard time praying and the reason why most of us never fast is because we don't think we need to do that. Here's what fasting is. I love the way John Mark Homer says it. It's not eating food in order to feed on the Holy Spirit. It's a spiritual discipline that reminds you that that man doesn't live on bread alone, like Jesus says, but we live on every single word that comes from Jesus, Think about what your life would look like if you intentionally took time every now and then to simply ask God to fill you with him. And then you reminded yourself you really needed him. Like there's this literal hunger inside of your body and it's craving something and it's a reminder that you need God to fill you up. I'm telling you the most dangerous lie that most of us believe is that you can do it on your own. More than any other discipline. Fasting reveals that things control us. That we are enslaved to things and we don't like to give it up. Listen, if you can't go a day without your phone, you might have a problem. You might be controlled by your phone. If you can't like put your laptop away for a week on vacation, you might be controlled by your job. If you can't put the alcohol down for a couple of days, it might control you. All these things are reminders that there are things vying to control your life. And if you let them, you will never be truly free. Fasting is not about punishing you. It's about releasing you from the things of this world. Dallas Willard said it this way. He said, fasting is feasting on the Lord and doing his will. That's what fasting is. And the only way that you'll ever feast on his will is if you are released from the things that have you right now. Listen, there's nothing more spiritually enriching and powerful than developing a prayer life that sees God as good and then having a rhythm of fasting that releases you from the bondage of your stuff. Do you know how big of a reward it is? Think about it. Think about the reward. Your father who sees in secret will reward you. The reward of prayer is that you get God. The reward of fasting is that nothing gets you. See it? Jesus is really in it for your good. Imagine what it would look like to not be owned by your health or your possessions. Imagine what it would feel like to be truly free from the things of this world, not be owned by your time. Imagine what it would feel like to get that gift from God. God wants to give it to you. Now, there's one more thing, and this is the one none of us like, that Jesus has owned you. You ready for it? Generosity. Or let's be the negative money. Look at verse 20. No one can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other you cannot serve God and money Listen to what Jesus is saying First of all let me be captain obvious blind people can't see light Jesus is saying that your eyes need to work in order to see the light Now how do you fix your eyes You ready You fix your eyes on Jesus when you pray and when you fast, you begin to see the world more clearly. Any of you, when you're growing up, had those little books with the optical illusions, right? Where you had to stare at it for a long time, and the more you stare at it, everybody in the world saw the clarity of the picture but me. <laughs> I'm like, I don't see it. Move your eyes back, move the book. I still don't see it. I'm blind. Jesus is saying that the world is like looking at an optical illusion book, and if you don't stare through the picture to him, you'll continue to be blind by what the world's showing you. But the more you look to him, the more you see the light, the more clearly you're supposed to see the world. Now, notice the connection here. Money, watch this, money is the one thing in life that hides itself in the picture in such a way that will ultimately control you. It's the one common good that most of us believes is okay. And Jesus says, no, it's the most controlling force on the planet. See, you don't have to make comparisons with murder and adultery. We all know those things are bad. So Jesus doesn't have to say, hey, don't, it's it's bad. No, we know those things. But what he says is our love for money has a way of controlling us. And the warning is, if you aren't careful, you won't see your greed. It will blind you. And underneath that optical illusion will be something that will draw you in and it will eventually own you like a taskmaster. Greed hides itself in a way that nothing else in life does. It convinces you that you can see the world clearly when it ultimately blinds you. I want you to see the point of the entire context. Listen, Jesus isn't after your money, as if he needs help. you realize... That Jesus doesn't care about your money, he cares about your heart. Y'all, if you actually look at this over and over and over again, the God who spoke created galaxies and they came into existence as if he needs $20 out of your pocket. Jesus doesn't care about your money. When when he needed to pay a tax, he put a coin in a fish's mouth. What you need to know is that Jesus talks about money more than any other subject in the Bible. Did you know that? Over 40% of everything that Jesus says is about money, every 10 verses, Jesus talks about money. And it's not because he needs your money. It's because money is destroying people's souls. If I could get one thing to you, it's this. Money won't solve your problems. Matter of fact, I was talking to Derek earlier, who's a police officer in Alpharetta. And he's like, man, I get called out to really nice houses all the time because there's some deep problems. Listen, money is a good tool. It is a terrible God. Okay? Okay. I need you to get that. It is a good tool, but it is a terrible God. And God cares so much about you that he is going to talk about the things that are enslaving you. And he's not apologetic about that. So here's the positive. Fasting and prayer takes your eyes off the temporary things of this world and puts them on the eternal. Generosity does the same thing. See, here's the myth. You don't need to apologize for the fact that you are wildly successful people. God gave you that gift. It's a great gift. What God wants you to do is steward that gift and be generous people. You have, the, you have the ability to impact the world in ways that nobody else does. There's nothing wrong. You don't have to feel bad that you're successful. But what you should do is you should say, God, how can I steward this thing so that my eyes can see clearly by being generous? Generosity has a way to release you from dependence on your success and put it on God. And that's the point. Church, we've said this around here before. And let me just say it really clearly. God's not trying to take money out of your pockets. He's trying to take idols out of your heart. Okay. And I've told you this, if this bothers you, listen, go give your money somewhere else. What I care about is that you're generous people, not that you fill line items on our budget. Okay. So if that's that's like, if you're like, oh my gosh, I can't believe I came to church for that today, go give it somewhere else. You know what's crazy? The things that Jesus uses as examples for where your treasures are, watch this. It's not houses and nice cars. This is wild. If you actually go and read the rest of the chapter, the things he uses is food and clothing. Why is that important? Because these are needs and not wants. Here's what he's telling you. He's telling you that it's your stuff, even your needs that you look to, to be your provider. And that's what's blinding you. See, if you want to get the, if you want to get Jesus's entire point of Matthew 6, it's this. If you are the provider for your needs, then it will become your own savior. But if Jesus is the provider for your needs and your wants, he will be your savior. And then you will be able to enjoy the things of this world. You see, money isn't the problem. The problem is that money has a way of making you buy the lie that you can care for yourself. I mean, when was the last time that you thought about your next meal? You don't. You just go to Costco, buy 46 pounds of bacon, and you put it in your freezer. Money is not the problem. Dependence on God is the problem. And generosity has a way of releasing you from that dependence, that independence, See, generosity is a physical way to take your possessions that are controlling you and give them back in a way that doesn't control you. Watch this. Here's the connection. Prayer takes your mind and puts it on God. Fasting takes your body and puts it on God. Generosity takes your possessions and puts them on God. All of these things are about holistically transforming your life so that you can be free from this world. So let me give you three practical ways to practice generosity. Here they are. Number one, give your first and your best to the church. See, when the nation of Israel was being established, God told them to take their first and their best and give it back to him. And here's the reason. Here's the reason why this was so difficult and why God did that. Because when they gave their first and their best, they did not know if God was going to provide them with more crops or if their cow was gonna have a calf. You realize how difficult it is to say, God, the first of my crops, I'm going to give to you because I don't know if I'm going to get any more crops. See, what ends up happening is we end up reversing that, don't we? We we take care of ourselves and then whatever we have left over, we give here. But what that never does is it never practices generosity because it never functions out out of giving God control of my stuff. So here's the principle. What if you gave your first and your best to the church first? And then you had to trust God to provide for your mortgage and your bills and taking care of your family. That's a lot more difficult. But what it ends up doing is it ends up releasing you from those things so that you can develop a pattern in your life. Here's the easiest way to do that. This is going to be real practical here. Set up a reoccurring donation to the church and don't think about it. But what, what, what the temptation is going to be, is that you're gonna wanna cancel it anytime something happens. And I'm just telling you, this is a way for God to move your heart back to him. So what if you did that? What if you just set aside 10% of your gross income and you just basically said, I'm gonna set up a reoccurring giving and God, that's yours. My first and my best. That's what my family does. And you know what? It's not even a part of our lives anymore. And I can just tell you every single elder on our, at our church and all of our staff, they give and they tithe their first and their best here because we wanna practice that generosity too by the way, can I just tell you, when you do that, you're not just paying a light bill around here, you're participating in the mission of God. Did you know that because of your generosity, our small young church plant has given away over a quarter million dollars to global and local missions here through City Church? See, we've been able to meet immediate needs like paying light bills, fo- helping foster kids, teaching in schools. We're going to make a donation to the Santa Middle School's football team this year so that they can buy uniforms. We got a banner hanging up in the gym at Santa Middle School, and that's not because we want a name, but it's because we just give generously. Yo, know, when I first came here, when we first moved here five years ago, I had the opportunity to meet a waitress at a restaurant named Rachel. She, she was our server, and I just asked her like that random question, hey, we're about to pray, how can I pray for you? You know what she said? She said at that moment, and and most people are like, I'm good. She's like, actually, I have some really difficult things going on. I've got a daughter, and I can't pay my bills, and I'm with this guy who's a lot older than me, and he is enslaving me to do bad things in order for me to pay the bills for my kids, and I don't know what to do. Y'all, when that prayer request comes in, you're like, "Uh uh-oh. A group of people at City Church started meeting her needs to get her out of that home, and they provided for her physical needs, and then all of a sudden, she disappeared. I didn't know if she was alive or not. About a year later, I got this note from her. Listen to this, I'm going to read it. She says, hey, I know you haven't heard from me in a while, but I want you to know that you guys gave me and my daughter our first Bible. And at the time that we met, I was a very, very, very lost person, imprisoned under the chains of alcoholism and heroin addiction with zero knowledge of the Savior. Though I didn't really know what praying for somebody did, I accepted your prayers that y'all generously offered to me. You planted a seed that maybe, just maybe, there was some man out there looking after me. I ended up being taken to a detox center and was asked if I was open to a Christ-centered rehab. If it weren't for you, I never would have said yes. Prior to us meeting, I was the outcast, the drug addict, the prostitute. I was the unbeliever. I had made up my mind that I didn't believe a very long time ago, but you showed me that he never stopped believing in me. Your prayers saved my life. Jesus has delivered me from a life of sin and a life of complete ignorance of him and his presence and all of that. Your prayers sent me to South Carolina and I am proud to say that today, by God's grace and mercy, I am over a year and a half clean and sober, free from drugs and alcohol. I am a Jesus follower. I would have never found him without you all being obedient and taking a chance on an outcast like me. You and City Church are an essential part to my story, and I know that it is all Jesus working through your life and through your church, and I have to say thank you. With everything in me, thank you. That's what your generosity fuels. That's not my story. That's our story you're a part of that story, guys. I hope you get that right. We did not move to Alpharetta to have a big old building filled with a bunch of people and luxurious stuff. You know, the reality is the only thing that you can take to heaven with you is people, not your stuff. And that's why we relentlessly leverage everything that we have to see more stories like this. Like Samuel, Samuel who leads our production. Do you know how Samuel got to our church? Some small group at City Church decided to throw a cookout and they invited Samuel, who was was new to our area, to come to their church. And by the way, over the last couple years, Samuel comes, his brother was baptized here and both his mom and dad are serving back in City Kids right now. Because of your generosity, I don't know if you know this or not, let me tell you a secret. Your generosity didn't pay for the burgers for the cookout. It paid for the life change that's happening in this room. That's what you're a part of. See, it's all a means to an end, and listen to me, I will never, ever, ever apologize for going all in with people, because at City Church, people are the mission, and what we do around here is we want to fill this up with Jesus worshipers, because I want to see more stories like that. Don't ever forget that. Don't ever forget to the place that you arrive Build margin into your lives and give generously because that will release you from the bondage of this world and you'll get more stories like this. Here's number two. Build margin to respond. Y'all, you know, a lot of you are sitting here thinking, that sounds great. I don't have 10% to give you. That's the point. See, so you have to begin to build margin into your life because if you don't, what will end up happening is you're gonna be owned by the next thing, by the credit card bills, by the mortgage, by whatever the case might be. Generosity takes discipline. Something I learned a long time ago is that if you want to say yes to something, you're going to have to say no to something else. The question you're going to have to ask yourself is, do you believe this is important? Because the reality is, is most of us do exactly what we want with our lives And the more you have that stuff, the more you have the stuff of this world, the more the stuff of this world is going to enslave you. And that's the point. At some point, you're never going to be able to be generous and responsive because you don't have the margin to do so. What if you just built generosity into your budget? What would it take? What would it take? What what exercise do you need to do right now to make that happen? Maybe, Maybe you just need to cut out that $8 latte that you get every day from Starbucks. Or maybe you got to go down to one car payment. Whatever it takes, whatever it takes to do this discipline, let me just tell you, it is worth it, but you got to build the margin to do it. Number three, number three, you need to build a theology of grace. Here's what I mean by that. The first two practical steps towards generosity are all about what you do. But if you don't understand why you do it, it's simply going to become another religious task. you got to start with grace. You got to start with grace. You give because he first gave. Write this down. True generosity is an overflow of a humble heart. See, it's only when your heart is humbled by the gospel that you begin to give generously. Look at what he says in verse 24. No one can serve two masters. You, you get the implication here. You're going to be owned by something. Can I just tell you that, that if you look theologically, you never stop being a slave You're either a slave to Christ or you're a slave to this world. But being a slave to Christ brings joy and freedom. Being a slave to this world continues to enslave you to needing more. No one can serve two masters. For either you will hate the one and you'll love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Are you owned by the gospel? Do you get what Jesus has done for you? That he freely gave... You want to talk about generosity? God gave you his first and his best. He gave his only begotten son, which means his first son, he gave. He gave his first and his best, and he, didn't, and he didn't just tithe off the top line. He gave you everything. He gave you himself. Do you get this? I'm telling you, there's nothing that will melt the heart more than knowing that God himself, who created everything, loved you so much that he didn't just give up on you when you were at your worst, but he pursued you. Instead, he put on flesh. He lived your perfect life. He died your death in your place so that you could, 2 Corinthians five seventeen become a new creation. The entire point of Matthew 6 is ultimate freedom. See, God wants you to be freed from the things of this world. Like the old hymn writer said, turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full at his wonderful face, and all the things of this earth will grow strangely dim in light of his glory and grace. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. When the posture of your mind, remember the eyes, and your body and your possessions look to the cross, the things of this world become strangely dim. I think about my earthly hero, Tim Keller, when he was dying of pancreatic cancer. And you look at the world around you, and people ask the question how was he so peaceful? Like, why wasn't he freaking out by the fact that he's about to die and leave everything behind because the things of this world had grown strangely dim? He wasn't owned by the things of this world. He was owned by the God who put, died on the cross to give him life everlasting. Do you want to know the secret to joy? I mean, real joy, not happiness, not happenstance, joy. Unshakable, sustainable joy. It's practicing these disciplines of taking your eyes off the horizontal and putting them on the vertical. It's leveraging your life for the eternal instead of for the temporary. Here's what it is. Change lives. Change lives. you oh, your story is so compelling. Dads, I just want to tell you, you know, statistically speaking, this is the one day you don't come to church and you're here. Do you know how compelling that is to your kids? I, I don't try to call them out, but Matt Fry. Man, you're back there, and your son is in a baseball uniform, and you got up and came to church today before going to a baseball game. Man, you're you're like my dad hero. Thank you. Dustin does the same thing. Man, it's so compelling. Your life, what you tell people—the gospel story of radical transformation—is so awesome. Listen, when people see your radical generosity, when people see your life is different, when people see that you are finding Jesus beautiful. It is so polarizing and so attractive. What they need to see, they don't need to see that you got it all together. They need to see that you trust God and that you seek his presence, that you're prayed up, that you trust him with everything, that you're generous. Y'all, I think if Jesus had to ask you one question, you know what I think he'd ask you? Why in the world are you spending so much of your money on things that you're not gonna keep? Imagine this, imagine, I travel quite a bit, Imagine I got to the hotel room and I, uh, you know, some of you are at the Ritz, I'm at the Best Western. And so I show up at the Best Western and I'm like, man, I don't really like this room. So I call down to the front desk and I'm like, hey, can you tell me where the nearest Home Depot is? They're like, why? Because I'm going to do some upgrades. So I go to Home Depot and, and I tear out the carpet and I put in some nice wood floors and I get a golden toilet because who doesn't want a golden toilet? right? We make a breakfast nook in there and and we get the whole thing fancy. You know what you'd say, what are you doing? You're checking out in 48 hours. Why would you invest in that? Don't you know that that's what God is saying to you? What are you doing? You're only going to be there a short time. Why are you leveraging your life for temporary things instead of the eternal? Y'all, it's ridiculous. You don't renovate a hotel room And you should think about the world the same way. The reality is, you can have your stuff, or your stuff can have you. The way that you think about the world is like this. Stop giving your life to the temporary and start leveraging your life for the eternal. He's enough. He will provide for all of your needs. There's one word, let me land the plane here, that he uses that I think is fascinating, treasure treasure. Jesus actually tells a parable that is my favorite parable in the entire Bible. It's short. Listen what he says. It says, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and he covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and he sells all of his, that he has and he buys the field. Can you imagine <clears throat> that you went home today and you start selling all your stuff? You sold your house, you cashed in your 401k, you sold your cars, people be scratching their head like, what are you doing? You're nuts. Unless, unless the treasure in that field was infinitely more valuable than what you gave up. Jim Elliott, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. I think that all of us, most of us, are so reluctant to go all in with God because you don't realize the treasure you have in Jesus. And what God wants to do is release you from the things of this world so that you can enjoy them. Y'all, do you get that one day he's going to wipe away every tear from your eyes, that you're going to inherit this world and his kingdom, and he's going to be with you forever and ever and ever? See, over and over and over again, Jesus says that your Father will reward you. There is a reward like no other. And it's freedom. Freedom is being released from the things of this world. And I'm telling you, the three best ways to do that is prayer, fasting, and generosity. Because the fads will come and go, but what you have in Him will be eternal. Let me pray for you. Father, it's a hard message. It's a hard one for me because, well, it's a lot easier to rely on myself than it is to rely on you. But God, I don't want us to be enslaved to the things of this world. I want us to enjoy them. Our circumstances, they tend to control us. But God, you're a good father who wants good things for your children, and I pray that you would help us. To receive the gift that you have for us. The God who knows, the God who sees, wants to reward you. Thank you, Jesus. I pray all this in your name. Amen.